Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Ryan S. Walters. Ryan is a writer and historian living in North Texas. He teaches American history at Collin College and is the author of several books, including Remember Mississippi, Apollo 1, and if you can remember all the way back to episode 41 of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom last week, I linked to Ryan's book, Grover Cleveland, The Last Jeffersonian President, about my favorite president in American history. Today, he has a new book out about another president I talked about during that episode called The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Why does Warren Harding need to be defended? What is it that we have wrong about him? Well, I call him the most maligned president in American history, and I think that's true. I think if you look at all of the presidential rankings, the polls, of course, we know who's doing those rankings. We understand that. But Harding has finished last in more of them than anybody else, even James Buchanan. Recent years, he's come up a couple of notches, but he's still in the bottom 10. He's still considered a failed presidency. But I think if you look at his whole record, if you look at everything, just pull back and look at everything he accomplished in less than 900 days in office because he died in 1923, his record is actually very impressive in terms of the economy, foreign policy, which he gets no credit for, domestic tranquility. The country was in turmoil when he came into office. So his record is actually very good. So one of the things I really like about the approach of your book and it reminds me of a little bit of Kevin Goodsman's last book on Jefferson, is that it's fine to write some 800-page book that just hero worships a president you like and tells everybody what he had for breakfast. But instead, you take a more targeted approach and tell us why he's important, which is really the reason to know about people from history. The one thing that stands out to me is that you talk about some of the social unrest. Now, some people might think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad are something new. And oh my gosh, they say they're socialists, but that's nothing new. That's something that Harding dealt with during his presidency and even before that. 
is one of the things about Harding, you have to put him in proper context, the context of the times. And when you look at what was happening in the country, a couple of historians tarnished him by saying that he's not a very good president because he didn't accomplish anything. There wasn't really anything going on. And I'm thinking what most of these people don't even know anything about Harding. They don't, they're just regurgitating these attacks that we've seen for a hundred years, which I try to dispel. But you're exactly right. At the end of World War One in November of 1918, we had our own flu pandemic going on at the same time. Beginning in 1919, not only, not only, not only that, you had the fight of the League of Nations, Woodrow Wilson's stroke. And Woodrow Wilson was incapacitated for nine months. We really didn't have a president. Actually, his wife was probably running the White House, as, as they say. All of that was going on. 1919 was a terrible year. We had a lot of terroristic bombings. Bolshevik groups, anarchist groups were setting off bombs. They even bombed the House of the Attorney General of the United States and other targets. Racial violence was awful in the summer of 1919. They called it the Red Summer. It was so bad. It were scores of African-Americans that were lynched around the country. We're not talking about the South. The worst violence was probably in Chicago, where, where several days of race rioting up there. Just a terrible year. Just a, everything going wrong. January 1920, we get the forgotten depression strikes in 1920. And it was a pretty bad depression. James Grant's got a great book out on it. It was terrible. And so all of these things are hitting, and that's what happened in 1920 with the presidential election. Harding comes in with his great campaign slogan, Return to Normalcy. And that's exactly what people wanted to hear. And we've got a lot of problems today. So I think you can look at these past presidents and see how they dealt with problems, particularly economic problems. Our economy is in a mess today. And there's a lot of lessons we can learn from Harding and Coolidge and Andrew Mellon. One of the knocks you hear about Harding is that he was too busy partying and womanizing to do anything about the 1920 depression. What is true about that? Harding was a partier in earlier days. He liked a good time. Now, he and Coolidge is very interesting. He and Coolidge are very close in their political philosophies. They're a perfect match for uh, running mates, Harding and Coolidge, but now their personality is totally different. Coolidge is this introverted guy who wouldn't have been caught dead with a drink in his hand. Now, Harding was very extroverted. He liked people, liked being around people and, and speaking to people and meeting people. But he, he'd have a drink and he had a couple of extramarital affairs before he became president. What they say is all of that came with him to the White House. He brought all his friends and they're partying up and having these wild parties and women in the White House and all that kind of stuff. And that's just simply not true. I mean, you look at the primary sources, look at the people who worked in the White House. Um, and they'll tell you that did not happen. There were no wild parties in the White House. There were no women that came in there. People said he had all these different women and he liked to go in the closet off the Oval Office and that kind of thing. And one of them was a Secret Service agent. He said no women came in here and seen President Harding. So a lot of that's just political smears. Historians, left-wing historians take these same political smears and they run with them as if they're true. They don't even stop to try to check them out. They don't even put any source attribution for these stories. It's become common knowledge now that Harding was a wild party or that kind of thing. But when you look at the sources, none of that's true. Now, again, before, before he was president, yeah, he had some affairs. He did produce one illegitimate daughter. Now, we know those things. Again, he's not perfect, but again, bringing it into the White House, that didn't happen. Immediately when I hear about scandals such as those, I'm suspicious that somebody wants him out for political reasons, because I think you could probably dig up some dirt on just about every powerful person that gets to high office. Grover Cleveland, they did the same thing to Cleveland. They tried to smear him with the same brush. So yeah, the other side's going to do that kind of stuff and exaggerate it and sensationalize. It's just politics. But as far as doing nothing about the 1920 depression, why do most historians have that wrong? 
Most of them are left-wingers, and, and a couple of scholars have pointed that out. One of the reasons why he's tarnished in such a manner is because most of the historians, they like Wilson. They like FDR. They like activist government. They want an imperial presidency. They want the government to take care of them, cradle the grave, all that kind of stuff. And those ideas were prevalent at the time. So these historians are just running him down. And of course, they don't want to give him any credit for the Roaring Twenties, which was an economic, the record of the, the economic record of the 1920s was stellar, average 7% a year. You average 7% a year growth throughout the decade. They cut income taxes four times. You get a surplus every year. You don't get a deficit. They paid off a third of the national debt in the 1920s. It's a phenomenal growth rate. If you look at the statistics, every class of citizen benefited. It wasn't like a trickle-down thing or anything like that. And even the lower classes, tremendous wage growth during the 1920s. So it's a stellar record, and they don't want to give him credit for it. Because what they'll do then is say, okay, he they had the Roaring Twenties, but that's what caused the Great Depression, which is a lot of nonsense, too. The 1920 Depression, by all the metrics that economists usually use, was worse than the 1929 depression that occurred later. But most people haven't heard of this depression. I would like to say it's because it's the only time in modern American history where this Austrian economics approach was attempted, which is, first of all, do not intervene. Secondly, cut spending, cut taxes, and let the correction occur. Is there more nuance to it, or is that generally right? Yeah, it's exactly right. It's exactly what they did. They came in with that attitude. Again, the, yeah, the depression was bad. It's forgotten depression because it was so short. Why was it so short? Because they did the right things and it was over by July 1921. The economy was growing again because they came in. And you can look at the, and I have this in the book, you can look at the newspapers, uh, Wall Street journals and the different papers around the country. And when Harding was elected and when he was inaugurated, the business was raring to go because they knew what kind of program they were getting. They knew Harding and Cooley's, they knew Andrew Mellon. Business had been stifled under Woodrow Wilson and his progressivism. Look at what the tax rates were with World War I. I mean, the top tax rate had gone over 70%. And Harding and Coolidge brought it down to 25% and cut spending in half. Spending was about $6 billion. They cut it to $3 billion. Wouldn't that be nice today to somebody to come in and just whack spending at 50% across the board? So, yeah, you're letting the economy uh, correct itself and there's no stimulus there's no no checks are going out no there's no jobs programs and things like that hurt the economy it doesn't help it so i think it was paul johnson who said in his book the history of the american people that harding and coolidge was the last uh, presidential duo again you got to call them a duo because harding only uh, was only there about two and a half years but they were the last ones to, to cure a depression by pure laissez-faire methods. They were the last ones to do. And I always include Coolidge because Harding included Coolidge in the meetings. Before that, vice presidents were shunned. They weren't around. But Harding brought Coolidge in and said, hey, help me pick our team and sit in on cabinet meetings and get into the discussion. So Harding helped to transform the vice presidency into its modern role. So Coolidge was very much a part of what was going on. I'm glad that you said that because I actually, in that podcast, I said that I like to think about Harding and Coolidge is almost one presidency because of the reasons that you stated. It's good to hear it confirmed by somebody who studied this a lot closer. And really, it was like the last laissez-faire period in American history. But you're also the author of a book on Grover Cleveland, 
you call him the last Jeffersonian. I would say that Coolidge and Harding both praised Hamilton. And you could say that they were more of a Hamiltonian presidency than a Jeffersonian one. Is there anything wrong with that? No, you're, you're right about that, particularly in terms of, of tariffs and trade. They did believe in protective tariffs, and there were new tariffs under Harding because Wilson had cut tariffs and, of course, replaced it with an income tax. And they were much more business-minded. Now, Grover Cleveland gets tagged with that. And one of the things I did in, in, in my book is try to show that uh, Grover Cleveland was not a businessman's president at all. That's the kind of the, the knock against Cleveland. But Harding and Coolidge were. What his statement was, the business of America is business. Harding had said something similar. So it was certainly a business boom. Um, there's no question about that. And there certainly was Hamilton. There's Hamiltonianism um, in the administration. Even uh, some senators, when the economy got rolling, some senators said that Andrew Mellon was the greatest secretary of the Treasury since Alexander Hamilton. So take that with you know, however you want to take it. But of course, their program worked. But I think most of it is because of the not only the tax cuts and the spending cuts, but they rolled back a lot of the regulations and things, too. They weren't enforcing them. And to me, regulations is, is ever bit as bad as, as taxation, if not worse, and stifling economic growth. I have to agree with you. I've done quite a bit here on the New Deal and how that is just still killing us after all these years. One of the things, too, that Grover Cleveland is not given credit for, I think, is he was under tremendous pressure to go into Cuba and really start off the imperial age on foreign policy. And part of this myth that you break up about Harding just being a partier and a womanizer, I think what gets lost is how important he was to foreign policy. Yeah, I loved his, uh, writing about the, his foreign policy, which is an interest of mine. And he, you never hear anything about foreign policy at all. Some people will mention the Washington Disarmament Conference, but that's all they'll mention. But there's a lot that he did in foreign policy. And remember, he served less than 900 days in office, but he formally ended World War I, withdrew our troops from the Rhineland. In 1921, we still had troops in the Rhineland. And Woodrow Wilson had made a mess of foreign affairs in Latin America and Mexico. The Mexican president called Wilson a, a terrible enemy of Mexico. And when Harding came in, he called that day a day of deliverance. And Harding wrote messages and notes to the president of Mexico, and they repaired those relations. We still had troops in different parts of the Caribbean that he withdrew. The World War debt problem was terrible. He called a commission to straighten out the debt problem. We were owed $10 billion ourselves by the allied powers in Europe. And of course, the Washington Disarmament Conference, also called the Naval Conference, but it did a lot more than just scale back the navies. Those were considered the worst weapons of the days, but it, 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 it they banned poison gas on the battlefield. They, there were some treaties struck. One scholar said the treaties that were struck and with, with uh, Japan and the Pacific staved off war there for at least a decade. So there were a lot of things that he did in foreign policy. He was actually twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Most people don't know that because of the Naval Conference. So when you look at his speeches and the fact that he said, we don't want any, of course, he was a senator. He voted for war against Germany, but his position was, we're not doing this again. He said as in his inaugural address, we've got to disentangle ourselves from the squabbles of the old world. We don't want to get back involved in that. We've done it once, we're not going to do it again. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. 
For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just aren't logical. you crazy in the head. You're a history professor. And, and as you said, it seems like the rule is that only a president who does something historically significant, which in most cases is not to the benefit of the people they govern, are up there at the top of the list for historians. What made you different? As a history professor, I'm a conservative, very libertarian guy, so I'm a rare breed anyway. But I just like to study the real history and the truth and get into the primary sources and look at what went on. Of course, people say he's a biased historian. Every historian is biased. Every writer is biased. The ones that tell you they're not are the worst ones. But if you came to my class, though, Tom, I'll tell you this, and sat in my class throughout the whole semester, there's been days you would say, yeah, he's pretty conservative. There's some, he's, he's probably a pretty libertarian guy. Other days you wouldn't say that. So I think what you have to do is just, you know, teach the truth. And I try to do that with my class with enlightenment, enlightenment principles. I always tell them, I say the, the enlightenment rules in here. You make your own decisions. I'll put this out here. We'll talk about the facts, and then you decide for yourself what you want to what you want to believe. I don't try to you know push them one way or the other. But when I see presidents like Cleveland and Harding that have just been beaten up and maligned, Harding has for a hundred years, and you start looking at the record and you say this is not right. This is not right. Somebody had to step up to the plate, and I've had a lot of people send me emails and stuff and say you're really courageous for doing something like this. Most people won't tackle it, but. I don't see it as courage. I just, I'm just trying to find the, the truth and put it out there. My father grew up during the Depression and World War II, and nobody ever takes a step back and says, okay, if FDR was a great president and Harding was a terrible president, how come life was so much better while <laughs> Harding and Coolidge were in office? I remember a story that my dad told, and this goes along with the whole idea that World War II somehow solved the depression just because you could put numbers up for GDP or unemployment. But my dad told a story about in the 1940s during the war, ketchup being rationed, and that on the way home from the store to pick up ketchup, the only ketchup they were going to have for the month, it fell through the bag and dropped. And he was afraid to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to go looking for him. This is what life was like under the great president. And under the terrible president, we have what was called the Roaring Twenties. Now, the other story is that all of this economic exuberance led to the Great Depression. Well, I'll tell you, you read these FDR worshipers, FDR lovers, FDR apologists, people like William Luchtenberg. Read William Luchtenberg's book, books on FDR. And what he says calls the Great Depression. I'm thinking you're you're just regurgitating everything FDR said in his speeches. Well, what was you're not telling us anything, and a lot of that's what you get. 
And of course, Mises had it right, exactly what was wrong with the Depression. And Murray Rothbard, when you read those guys and you look at the problems with the Federal Reserve, that's what I point to as well. People say Harding and Coolidge, if you give them credit for the boom, you have to give them credit for the bust. No, I don't. And one of the mistakes that's made, as you well know, is lumping Hoover in with Harding and Coolidge. Hoover was a Republican, but he was not a Harding Coolidge Republican. He was a progressive Republican. And he came in, and he's the one that started reversing things. And, of course, FDR came in and really reversed it. And, of course, when you take into account that the Federal Reserve pulled a third of the money out of circulation in four years, and then Hoover and FDR raised taxes to the degree they did. I think taxes tripled under FDR. Spending doubled. You're filing antitrust suits against all these corporations. You've got all these ridiculous uh, New Deal programs like AAA in, in the National Industrial Recovery Act and all these things we were talking about, the regulations and stuff. I tell people, how did you think the economy was going to grow with that kind of pressure on it? That's totally opposite of what Harding and Coolidge did. They're the ones that reversed it. Again, I'm not an economist. I'm a historian. But just looking at it from that standpoint, I said, what if we did that today? What if somebody came in today and tripled taxes and double spending and started suing everybody and had all these rates. I, I can tell you what's going to happen to the economy. It's going to, we're going to be sitting in a depression. There's no question about that. But and if somebody, I was on a radio show the other day, and, and they were getting messages while I was on there, and somebody sent a message in, and they, they read it to me and said, this guy's lying, Harding and Coolidge caused the depression. And I said, hey, go look at the Federal Reserve. They can do more damage to the economy in five minutes than all the presidents combined. Right now, as we speak, I think they're still just inflating a little slower. And sometime this month, they're going to stop. And and then the economy can't even take that, much less, like you said, pull so much of the money supply back all at once. And I remember Amity Schles had a great characterization of Hoover that is, I think, relevant to your book, which is he was an engineer. He was a brilliant guy. And the problem with people who like to fix things that get into office think that they can fix the economy or fix society and do this top-down thing. Now, Harding was an intelligent man, but he was a man who believed in the people and believed in the free market and just stand back and look at the results. No one's disputing that Hoover was intelligent. I dispute that FDR was as intelligent as they say, but that's a subject for another day. But Harding took the laissez-faire approach And of course, the results speak for themselves and people sometimes just don't want to look at the results. I think that's another thing is just stand back and say, who got better results for the people they were governing? What's one more myth we haven't talked about that you blow up in your book? Well, there's there's eight major myths that I tackle. One of them is really interesting is that Harding was nominated and elected and pushed by uh, a group of senators in the Republican Party because he was pliable because they could bend him to his, we'll put him in there and he'll do what we want. And he was not, in other words, he was not an independent guy. And I, I blow that myth up too. I blow up the whole myth that he was nominated in this smoke filled room and he was chosen by this group. And again, because of those reasons. And we just mentioned Hoover and Mellon in, in his cabinet. Harding picked his cabinet. He, he brought Coolidge to his home during the interim period. And they talked about cabinet selections and he'd already notified senators, some of the people he was going to pick. And of course the conservative senators, they were really happy with Andrew Mellon. They thought that was a great pick and it was a great pick, but he wanted Hoover in the cabinet as, and again, not a major cabinet position. He actually offered Hoover a choice. You can be interior secretary or commerce secretary. And of course, Hoover chose commerce. And as you said, he was a brilliant guy. He'd done a lot of good work with the food administration during the war and helping stave off famines in Belgium and places like that after the war. He was very well known around the world for his work. He was a good administrator. 
Now, again, people like Mellon and others didn't really want him in the cabinet. Mellon actually said he, there's too much of an, he's too much of an engineer, too much engineer here. And that's what they were afraid of. But Harding said, no, I want him in the cabinet at Commerce. I think he'll be a, do a good job. The Senate didn't want to confirm him. And Harding got tired of their pushback. And he sent him a little bitty note. He took a little piece, piece of paper, wrote out a note, a handwritten note. It said, Hoover and Mellon or no Mellon? And he sent that down to the Senate leaders. In other words, you're going to give me Hoover and then I'll appoint Mellon. Or if you don't, you're not getting Mellon. Now, that's not somebody that's pliable. That's not somebody that's being controlled by anybody. That's somebody that said, I'm, I'm going to run this administration the way I want to run it. And on Inauguration Day, remember, he's a former senator. He had floor access. After his inaugural speech, he went onto the Senate floor with the Senate in session. And he said, I, I want my confirmed today. And the whole thing. And they put every nominee up and, and, and voted them all in unanimously because that's what he wanted. That's not somebody who's being led around. There are other examples in the book, but he was not this guy that they were trying to control. He, I think he dispels that myth pretty easily. Why is he important to know about for what we're going through today? I think if you look at uh, Harding, just like when I did with Grover Cleveland, a lot of the problems are similar. And, and I, I like to try to do that with my students. Because, you know, a lot of students come in there, they got to take college history, and they're like, oh, gosh, you thought, you thought they were walking to the gallows or something. If you can relate it to the day, and that's what I try to do in most of my lectures, why are we learning? That? Why is this important? And I try to do that for most of my uh, lectures in history. I try to do the same thing with my books. It's important to know what happened in the past and because the past can path the past can chart us a path to the future particularly in terms of the economy our, our economy really struggled for years and years and i keep telling people we need to look, we need to look at past presidents and how they handle maybe take some lessons from that like you said look at the numbers in the roaring 20s why do we have numbers like that anymore because we don't have policies like that anymore that's why we don't have numbers like that. Same thing with foreign affairs. And a lot of people just, just go to Twitter today and look at how many people want to jump into Ukraine and fight the Russians. Come on, people. Uh, we don't need to do that. And people, somebody asked me the other day, what would Harding do about it? I said, we'd stay out of it. There's no question what we'd do. So there are a lot of lessons to learn. there. Another thing we hadn't even talked about is how he domestic tranquility was just not very good. How did he calm that down? He, Woodrow Wilson had thrown a lot of people in jail for protesting the war. He let them out of jail. He called for equality for black Americans, anti-lynching law. Now, there are a lot of things that he did that we can learn from today, no question about it. And interestingly, to your comment about you're not always seeming like a conservative, those people that Woodrow Wilson threw in jail were mostly socialists. And, and although Harding would not have agreed with them, he was not someone who would handle them the same way. So it's funny. We have a lot of socialists unrest. We have racial problems. It just sounds so familiar. History does repeat. There's so much more here than we could possibly talk about. Warren Harding is a president. You should get to know why the myths you've heard about him are not true. The Jazz Age president defending Warren G. Harding. Ryan Walters, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.